Hello everyone and welcome back to the CEO Journals podcast. For those of you that are new here, I'm your host Ethan Bridge and I just want to start off this episode by saying thank you all for joining. How often do you find yourself waiting for the perfect opportunity to arise before you set off on achieving a goal, only to come to the realisation that the perfect moment doesn't exist? Or how about comparing your starting position to that of somebody else? Making excuses such as, oh, their parents gave them the money, or their parents owned the company and passed it down. These are things you cannot be worrying or complaining about. They are situations out of your control. Weldon Long, today's guest on the podcast, didn't start his journey at the perfect moment and definitely wasn't well equipped with the capital to start a business. At the age of 39, Weldon was living in a homeless shelter after having served 13 years in prison. A ninth grade dropout and three-time convicted felon, he found himself broke and unable to gain employment. After six months of knocking on many doors, he landed a sales position and quickly became one of the industry's top sales leaders. In 2004, he opened his own company, and in 2009, that company was selected by Inc. Magazine as one of the nation's fastest growing privately held companies. Weldon's story is inspiring, and he has to be one of the most motivating people I've spoken to. His sales experience and prosperity mindset philosophies are staggering. I cannot wait for you all to hear what he has to say. So, without further ado, let's dive straight into the episode. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the CEO Journals podcast. I can't wait for you to listen to today's episode because I have Weldon Long on the show. Weldon, how are you doing today? I am doing great. Uh, we've uh, not had the challenges you guys have had in England, but uh, we're having plenty of challenges over here. We're getting through it and making the best of it. It's all to come. So sit tight, be prepared. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so, a lot. That's all right. So I mean, it's going to get worse. <laughs> Tell her now. <laughs> Go raid the supermarkets while she can. <laughs> so for the listeners who don't know who you are, would you mind just giving us a quick 60 second introduction of who you are and what you do, please? Yeah, so uh, I'm a New York Times bestselling author, a consultant, a speaker, an entrepreneur. I have had a lot of success, but really what defines me is my failures and struggles. I was a ninth grade high school dropout, lived on the streets for 25 years, spent 13 of those years in prison, and in fact walked out of prison at 39 years old to a homeless shelter just 16, 17 years ago, hard to believe. And uh, within five years of walking out of prison the last time into that shelter, I built an Inc. 5000 company and I started writing books and consulting and speaking and training and it's been an extremely wild ride. What an incredible journey and obviously that is what I want to talk about in today's episode and as you said there's been a lot of bumps along the road, a lot of failures and that is the reason I do this podcast to discuss the failures so I can't wait to talk more about those but the way I like to start all my episodes is to throw it back with my guests and talk to them about their time at school, just to find a little bit about them and their background. So let's focus on a 14-year-old version of yourself. How were you in school? Were you the class clown? Did you do what you needed to do to get by? Or were you quite a good student? No, I was a a pretty good student, uh, but I was definitely the class clown. I was a very detached, uh, kind of a, uh, I was always the outcast. I was always the outsider. 
Uh, I was raised in a very strict religion, and so my mother always encouraged us not to associate with worldly children, other kids. And my dad was in the military in the U.S. and the States back in those days. You move pretty much every year. So every year, I'm the new kid in school. I was the youngest of five kids, and I was encouraged to not involve myself with these people. So I was very insecure, very detached, and really didn't fit in anywhere. And so at 14 years old, it's an interesting period. I'm thinking about that would have been the eighth grade and uh, probably a very awkward age for anybody at that age. Mm-hmm. For me, it was, uh, it was really an outsider and didn't fit in with any particular group. And in fact, it was just the next year in the ninth grade when I dropped out of school because I just couldn't, uh, I couldn't fit in. I wasn't happy. And uh, so that was kind of the beginning of the, the end of the beginning or something, I think. <laughs> yeah. So obviously you've mentioned that your journey is, it's a very, very interesting one. So I'd love to talk about it. Yeah. And I'd love to ask where it all went wrong to begin with. What was the first thing that sort of went wrong that sent you down the wrong path? Well, I think, I think that when there was one particular moment in 1987, I was 23 years old. You know, I dropped out of school at 15. It was kind of running the streets. And I, I was kind of a knucklehead and a punk. I wasn't really a criminal or anything, just kind of a, a punk and real, no, no real plan. A, a very sense, high sense of entitlement for some reason, which I've never quite understood. At 56 years old, I'm not quite sure why at 15 and 16, I thought the world owed me something. But I uh, run in the streets. And uh, at 23 years old, I was out one night trying to pawn a shotgun to get rent and grocery money and ended up picking up this guy hitchhike and I couldn't pawn the gun for enough money uh, to, to pay the rent. So I picked up this guy hitchhike and we end up smoking cocaine. We're getting drunk and we end up a couple of hours later using that gun to hold two innocent men at gunpoint. And, and it's really interesting looking back because it was such a serious offense for a 23 year old kid who had never been involved in any serious criminal activity. You know, and to go from, from, from nothing to that was, was quite an extraordinary jump. And it was just one night of really bad decisions. We were apprehended uh, a very short while afterwards. And six months later, I was in front of a judge. And he sentenced me to the state penitentiary for 10 years for armed robbery and uh, crime of violence. Did about four years, four and a half years. I got out the first time at 27. And when I got out the first time, you know, I was still a ninth grade high school dropout. was still a punk and a thug. Now I was a convicted felon. So any issues with self-respect and confidence and self-esteem I had going in were compounded at this point. I thought my life was over. Made it about 18 months and went back to prison a second time. I hooked up with some guys I met in the joint. We got involved in some other stuff, drugs and guns, and went back to prison for a couple of years. Got out again at 30 years old. Now I'm a two-time convicted felon. Pretty much had given up on life and uh, took the only job I could find in this shady telemarketing uh, place. And I, I kid with people, I should have been suspicious when they hired me at that point. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't say much about their hiring standards. Did that for about a year and a half until one day the feds came in and I was indicted on federal money laundering and mail fraud charges and got sentenced to the federal joint for seven years. And so it was during that last seven years though, that finally I started to wake up and see the reality of life and started to make some changes. But, you know, just one bad decision led to another, to another until one day my eyes just kind of opened up and, and, uh, you know, I decided it was time to make a change. So when you were 23 and you were sitting in that courtroom waiting to find out how much prison time you were getting, what was going through your head at the time? Did you, did you know how serious it was? You know, I, I, I probably didn't. I had been convinced by an attorney, my attorney, 
that I had never, you know, because I'd never been in trouble before, it's a first offense, that most likely I would get some house arrest or some probation, something on those lines, maybe sent to a halfway house. And uh, when the judge said 10 years, I mean, really, I was having a difficult time processing. And I write about this a lot in my first book, uh, a little book called The Upside of Fear. And I just remember being escorted out of the back of the courtroom in handcuffs and walking down this hallway. And inside my mind, my brain is screaming, trying to comprehend what's just happened. And as I'm walking down this hallway, being escorted by the sheriff's deputy in handcuffs, I'm looking in the offices to either side and people are just in there working and going about their day. Everything seemed quite normal. And inside my head is screaming, the world just came to an end. And I couldn't believe that everybody wasn't upset with me. Like they weren't all looking at me like, wow, he just went to prison for 10 years. It was like, it was inconsequential to them. And I realized how small and inconsequential I was in the world. I remember that so specifically, but it was just so bizarre that the world was just going on while I was going through this explosion in my brain of not comprehending what was going on. It was very, it was weird. But you have managed to turn it around, which is incredible considering your track record from what you did have. So where did it all, where did you manage to change that mindset then? What did trigger that change for you to go, right, it's time to sort my shit out now, right? I need to pick myself up. Otherwise this is just going nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very clear day for me. It was June 10th of 1996. On June 10th of 1996, I was 32 years old. I had already gone to prison twice in the state of Colorado. Now I was in federal prison uh, on the uh, telemarketing money laundering stuff. And on June 10th of 1996, at the very beginning of that seven years, I was in maybe into two months into, into that seven years. And one of the cops walked in the cell house one day and said, Long, you need to call home. Your father's dead. And just like that, I learned my dad was, was gone. He died very unexpectedly at 59 years old. And I remember thinking the first thing that went through my brain was that dad went to his grave with me in prison again. You know, I always had it in my mind somehow that I would get my shit together and, you know, and be a person my dad could have been proud of. He could have been someone he could have respected. And, you know, I realized in that moment, that's never going to happen. Right? Whatever happens next, it ain't going to be that because he's not here anymore. And so I started thinking a lot about my father, like any of us do when we lose somebody we love. And I remember thinking uh, about a conversation I had with my dad not long before he passed away. It was a Sunday afternoon, and I called my dad. And as my dad always did, he took my collect calls, was always trying to encourage me in any way he could. And I'm having this conversation with my dad, and I'm bellyaching about the judge and the prison, the this and that, the ex-wife and all this stuff, and you know, bitching about everything around me, all these external forces that were destroying my life. You know, none of it was my fault at that point, of course. And at one point in the conversation, my dad says to me, he says, you know, son, your life could be worse. I said, dad, how in the hell could my life be worse? I'm a three-time loser. I got a ninth grade education. I've never had a job as an adult. Oh, by the way, by that time of the story, I had fathered a son when I was out on parole. So I had this little boy, three years old, that I had abandoned my own flesh and blood. I said, dad, you tell me how my life could be any worse. And my dad says to me the words that changed my life. He said, son, you're still breathing. And as long as you're breathing, you've got a shot to change your life, but you got to do it. And I didn't really understand the significance of those words at the time. So being the punk that I was at that point in my life, I said, thanks, dad. But it's more of like, thanks for nothing, dad. We exchanged our I love you's. I hung up the phone and I never talked to my father again. Two weeks later, he was gone. That turned out to be the very last thing he ever said to me. And those rang words, you know, they just rang in my head. 
you know, you know, as long as I'm breathing, I got a shot to change it. So the day my dad died on June 10th of 96, about four hours later, I'm just grieving the whole situation. The blinders for some reason came off. I saw myself for exactly what I really and truly was. No more rationalizations and bullshit justifications. Just like I realized I was a total piece of shit. There's no other way to put it. And I decided I was going to change my life. And I made a very simple decision. I was going to live my life and be a man my father could have been proud of. And I was going to be the father that little boy deserved. And I made that decision 23, 24 years ago. And it's really driven my life ever since then. Now, there was a complication, of course. Where do you start? <laughs> where do you start yeah. <laughs> turning the Titanic of this life around? But that's where the real journey began on that day. So you said something in there that I definitely picked up on as well is the fact that you have to be the one to make that change. There's a lot of people that sit around waiting for the opportunities to come to them. When in reality, those opportunities are only going to come to them when they actually put in the work. It's a quote I like to like, like to work by often. And it's um, opportunities seem to come when I work more. So it's something along those lines. It's worded much better than that, but I can't think of it straight off the top of my head. But it, when I read it, it's just like, it's just so true because people sit around thinking, oh, this will happen. They scroll through nice cars, wanting all of these fancy things going, oh, it will happen one day. It will happen. Yeah, but when will it happen? If you're right. just sitting there scrolling, it's never going to happen, is it? You have to seek yeah. these opportunities. You've got to work yeah. to get these opportunities. No one's going to come up to you in the street one day and go, here's, here's, here's a million dollars, here's a million pounds, right. go do what you want with it. You have to work for that. And it's not until, as you say, you realize that you actually have to work for these opportunities that people do pick themselves up and start working towards their dreams and their goals. It, so, really, it really shows you know, what's possible hmm. if people are willing to do the work. Exactly. Exactly. So where did you start? Because you came out of prison and went into a homeless shelter, right? So you had nothing. Yeah. No, the, the journey began the day my dad died. Once I made that decision, not knowing exactly what to do, I made the decision, a very simple decision, that I was going to find out what really successful people do, and I'm going to do that, you know, instead of the mm. crazy shit that I'd been doing. So I decided to start reading books and learn what successful people do. And I, I remember I walked out of my cell, and I walked down to the very end of the cell house. I was up on the second tier, and the very last cell on that tier was actually a broom closet, mob closet. And there were cleaning supplies and things that we would use to clean the cell house and, and whatnot. And there was a cardboard box in there full of books. The cops would come in and just throw these books in there, kind of donate the books. And I started rifling through that box and I came across a, a book you're probably very familiar with. I am extremely familiar with at this stage of my life. Uh, but it was Stephen Covey's classic, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And mm. I looked at that book and I'm like, you know, I could use some of habits of effective, like either one would be really good. Seven's going to be crazy, right? And so I took that book back to my cell. I started reading it and, uh, and I reread it and it became my roadmap for my personal life initially. And then since then, in the 16, 17 years I've been out with whatever businesses I've had, it's the roadmap for the businesses as well. And so that was kind of the start of the journey. And I remember reading that book in my cell. And one of the things Dr. Covey talks about, who, by the way, became a very close friend, uh, actually endorsed my first two books. I got to travel with him and speak with him, which was an amazing experience. But at this point, I was just a guy alone in the prison cell reading his book. But I remember in that book, Dr. Covey talks about in the very early stages of the book, he says, we have the opportunity to live out of our imagination rather than our past. And, and this was really big information for me. 
because I always just assume this is kind of who I was, right? This, the previous, you know, 15, 20 years of my life at that point defined me. And it was really good news because my past was violence and drugs and crime and prison. But I had the chance now to live out of my imagination. I had extremely vivid imagination. So that was the, the first ray of hope that I had. Another thing Dr. Covey talked about early on in that book was the principles of success in life and that you cannot break or compromise those principles. You can only break and compromise yourself against those principles. And I remember thinking, that's what I've been doing. I haven't shattered the, the, the principle of hard work or you know, integrity or faith or fidelity. I haven't shattered those principles. They're still shining strong. I've destroyed myself on those principles. And that was the first since probably, you know, we mentioned personal responsibility a moment ago. That was the first since I started getting like, wait a second, I'm, I'm doing this. I, I, the, the principles are there. I'm just violating those principles and destroying my life on them. So that was like the watershed moment, man. That, that, that's when the, the scales really started to come off. I started to see things, you know, in a, in a clearer light. And I like what you say about living through the imagination as well. And that's a great thing to also do when, for example, if you're doing got a consulting business or this and the other, and you're trying to get your first client, because if you act like you've had clients and you know what you're doing, then it's much more likely that you're going to land that first client. If you go in acting like that you have, you've got no clients and you have no idea what you're doing, then you're never going to land that client. You're never going to, you've not got, you've got no, no hope. Whereas yeah. if you actually go in with the mindset and imagination, like you've done it for years, right. yes, you know that you've not had a client before. You're much likely to land your first client. So, Absolutely. I mean, we, we, are, we, we project some, I mean, a, a small percentage of our communications are what come out of our mouth. You know, the, the vast majority of our communications are energy or body language, you know, uh, facial expressions and all those things either portray or betray what we're saying. Right. Mm. So if, if we're nervous, if we're insecure, we're communicating to people in a million different ways on, 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 on some level, you know, beyond the three dimensions, right? Because your thoughts, many, you know, brain scientists, neurologists think that thoughts are like brain waves, right? And when you have a thought, it kind of goes out just like a radio wave, right? If I, I don't hear any music in here now, but if I had a radio and turned on the right frequency, I could hear all kind of music. Right, the brainwave is the same way, and sometimes you're thinking something, and somebody else connects with you. They're on the same frequency. If you've ever had the experience where you think about a friend, and the phone rings thirty seconds later, that kind of stuff, mm. right? It, it, people can can intercept and can feel. They don't understand maybe, but they can feel these brainwaves. Your energy, for lack of a better term, and so people can smell fear. They can smell insecurity. They can smell desperation, and I don't mean literally smell it, but they can discern it. They can feel it. And it makes them feel not very secure in, in that. So you're absolutely right. You got to go in there and you got to fake it till you make it. You got to believe. You got to know, right? You got to do what you got to do. You got to go in there with your swagger, even when maybe that swagger isn't 100% deserved at this point. I suppose that's also a big one for when you're speaking as well. Because if you're on stage and you're speaking and you're nervous or you don't really believe in what you're talking about, the audience is going to think the exact same thing as well. Whereas if you go out there with confidence and charisma, the audience are going to love it because they're going to think the same. They're going to think you know what you're talking about because you believe you know what you're talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's kind of like uh, uh, that show. I don't know if you're familiar with it uh, in the UK, but uh, uh, with Alec Baldwin, it was called 30 Rock. And he, was, he played the role of the president of NBC. It was this sitcom here in the States many years ago. And on one of the episodes, he got called before Congress to answer for something that his television station was doing. And one of the Congresswomen was played by Queen Latifah. 
And she was up there and pontificating about that. And, you know, she sounded like Martin Luther King. She was so dramatic and so articulate and so passionate. And she's making these arguments against this television station. And then at one point she starts saying, but you know what really matters? What really matters is how I talk because I could be saying nothing. But if I say it like this, you think it matters, right? And she starts confessing yeah. that she's just talking out of her ass, but it's the way she's saying it. And she finishes speaking and the, and the crowd just starts giving her a standing ovation and going crazy, right? It's about the, about the emotion, the confidence we portray, not necessarily the confidence we actually have. It's about what we portray to people that really makes For the sure. difference. For sure. And it's something that everyone should take away and definitely implement, no matter what they're doing. Business, yeah. life, it, just life in general. So I'm interested then, where, how did your first business start? Was, did you go and get a job and earn some side income and build a business mm -hmm. alongside that? Or was it literally from scratch, bottom up, no money, see how it went? Yeah. Well, uh, let me back up just a little bit because yeah. from the time my father died, the time I got out was seven years. And I spent those seven years studying and learning. I got my GED. I got a bachelor's degree. There's a school in California, a university. Let me take courses. I got an MBA in management. Uh, I started studying the mindset, how the mindset related to success. So when I got out seven years later, like psychologically, emotionally, intellectually, I was a different human being. I did nothing but read and study for seven years. And one of my things that I stumbled into is, you know, we've all read kind of the Emerson quote, we become what we think about all day long. And so I had this massive list of amazing things on on, on a sheet of paper that was in my cell. I put toothpaste on the back of the sheet of paper and stuck it on my wall. It would guide every thought every single day. And one of those things was I'm an educated man. I'm a successful entrepreneur, blah, blah, all these amazing things. And so by the time, and I would review them every single day. It's a big part of what I call a prosperity plan and a quiet time ritual. It's about getting the mindset for success. So when I walked out of the joint six years later to a shelter, I had the mindset for success. And I spent six months, I got to this homeless shelter in January of 2003, which by the way, not more than six miles from where I live today, uh, was kind of up almost the same street, the other end of it, the other side of town. But uh, I, I had the mindset to be successful. So I went out there starting in January. I had no car. I had two sets of clothing and a couple of hundred bucks that an ex-cellmate of mine had sent me. He got out a little while before I did. And that was it. And I just started knocking on doors. And that went on for six months. And six months later, uh, the last week of June of 2003, I walked into the doors of a little heating and air conditioning company that I knew nothing about heating and air conditioning, but they needed a salesman. And I told them I thought I could do it. And I went out my very first month. I sold $149,000 of air conditioners, not knowing what the hell I was doing, made every <laughs> mistake one could make, but I made about $13,000 in sales commissions. And I never looked back. So I, I, I did that job for about a year and I came out of prison with no debt, obviously. So I saved a lot of what I made. About a year later, I decided that I would just open my own heating and air conditioning company. So I did that, had a little bit of money saved up, a couple of credit cards, and took that company the first year. We did $2 million, our second year, three and a half, seven million, our third year. Uh, and then 2008, 2009, we kind of hit the recession here in, that was global recession, but here in the US, the housing market crashed. So we kind of leveled off. We didn't fall off a cliff. We did level off some and ended up selling that business when the economy started coming back in 2010. But from the day I opened the doors, the day I sold it, we had done $20 million of residential HVAC projects. And so I just, I just got out there and just worked hard and learned the business as I went. You mentioned uh, starting with no capital. I mean, we would literally do an install of a new heating and air conditioning system, take that money from the homeowner, go to the supply store and buy the, you know, give them the cash and buy the next system, right? It was just hand to mouth, hand to mouth, hand to mouth for a couple of years. 
And then in 2009, I wrote my first book, The Upside of Fear. The book got a ton of awards. It was uh, Writer's Digest Best Book of the Year, New York Book Festival Best Book of the Year. And so people started calling me, and that's how I kind of started transitioning into the speaking and, and then wrote two more books. And it's just been one thing after another. But th th I think the point is, is that you got to just take action. You know, I, I remember one time when I was in federal prison in about 97, 98, a couple of years after my dad died. And I was in a federal prison in Florence, Colorado. And I don't know if you remember, but Tony Robbins used to have this 30-day program called Personal Power. And it was on cassettes. And they had a copy of it in the prison library. And uh, they had a little cassette player and set of headphones. And every day I could go in the library for a couple of hours. And I would go in, I would listen to one of, of those sessions. And it's, you're supposed to listen to one session each day. At the end of each session, Tony tells the listener, now you do something today. Go take some action today towards whatever we've been talking about. Whatever notes you've made, whatever thoughts you had, go take action today. And that was so instructive and so powerful for me. Now, some days it wasn't much I could do. Some days I was in prison. Some days it might be, okay, I got to read a book about that or whatever, right? But I would always take some action. And I learned the habit that I have a bias for action. I always do something. I will do something towards a goal I want, even if it's a mistake. I believe in that, that old thing about if you want to double your rate of success, you got to triple your rate of failure. Get the bad shit out of the way. Make all the mistakes as fast as you can. Then you figure shit out, right? Mm -hmm. And that's been true for me for any business venture I've been in. Just figure out the bad shit, move on to the good shit. And, and take decisive action. You don't have, listen, a thousand mile journey begins with a single step, right? I mean, Lazu said that thousands of years ago, but some people, they want to know like the 10th step and the 100th step. And then what happens if this contingency and what about, no one can know all that shit. Nobody can know everything that's going to happen. You got to know what you're going to do today and have the confidence that you can, you know, adjust on the fly if you need to, 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 to do the next thing. But if you wait till you think you got it all figured out, you're never going to get started. I'm big about jumping in and getting started on stuff and then figure it out. Exactly. And all of these people, there's loads of people out there that fall culprit to it as well. They'll read tens or hundreds of books right. and they'll have all this knowledge, right. but they've done nothing. They've done nothing. They think they know everything and they can say, I know this, I know that, I know this, right. but they haven't actually done anything with it. So exactly. of what value actually is it? And another thing that I picked up on that you said there as well is, Simply just take action. If an opportunity comes your way and you don't know how to do it, just say yes and yeah. learn along the way. Like, what is the problem? If it's come your way, you, you can learn it. There's enough out there. We've got the internet, for Christ's sake. Yeah. You can learn literally anything with one Google search. Even YouTube will yeah. show you how to do it step by step, word for word. The, we've got so much information out there to help us learn that these opportunities, we can just say yes to them. It's yeah. easy. It is easy. Yet people will, they will pull themselves away from these opportunities because they don't think they're ready for it. And another thing you mentioned, you started with zero capital, nothing. People will wait around thinking, oh, I'll start this when I've got a little bit of money in the bank or that I, I need some money. Oh, he's got lucky. He had a trust fund. His parents gave him a loan. That's not their problem. Right. They just that they just they they were just fortunate to have that kickstart. But you've just gone to show that you do not need money to start a big Absolutely. big business. Well, two things I want to comment on there, what you just said. Uh, it is easy. It's just always easier not to do it. it, yes. it it's, <laughs> it's always easy to do the things you have to do. It's just a little bit easier. It's what I call the conundrum of human nature. Right. That tendency to not do it because it's a little bit easier not to do it than to do it. But the other part about that is, is you just hit like one of the most important points that I think determines success and or failure in life. Our external conditions, the trust fund kid, 
versus the guy 39 years old getting into prison. The external conditions are different for each person. And mm -hmm. so it might be easier with that kid who's got the trust fund and the Harvard education. But that doesn't mean I can't do it. That just means I got to work harder. And so what people mistakenly do is they look out and they say, well, you know, I've got this challenge and that challenge and I wasn't, didn't have that opportunity. All that means the external challenges only determine how hard you're going to have to work to get it done. Doesn't mean you can't do it. I don't give a shit if that guy's got it easier, right? This guy's probably got it harder, right? There's probably a guy getting out of prison right now at 39 years old with no education or whatever, and he's got no legs. There's always somebody worse off than me. So I can sit here and say, well, look how easy he's got it. Well, mm -hmm. let's look and, and see how much better you got it over somebody else. The external challenges only determine how hard it's going to be. It doesn't mean I can't be successful. And if I got to work 10 times harder, I'm cool with that. Because I can tell you what's never going to happen. I'm never going to go to my wife and my children and say, hey, we can't go to the Bahamas and swim with the pigs this year, or we can't go to Maui and vacation this year because I'm too big of a chicken shit to do what I got to do. I'm too big of a chicken shit to work 10 times harder. That conversation ain't never happening, right? I might mm. fail. I might flop flat on my fat face, but I promise you this, I'm going down swinging. It's never going to be because of a lack of effort or a lack of working hard. And I think that's so important as well. And it's also where people get stumped. They stumble these days as well with, cause there's things like Instagram and all we see on social media platforms nowadays is simply a highlight reel. You do see those holidays in Maui with the pigs and yep. private jets, fast cars. And yes, they are great. And obviously you want to yep. share them if you've got them, but as someone who doesn't have them and people that are looking out wanting these things, it can almost put a downer on it because you haven't seen the journey to how they've got there. You've eaten a hell of a lot of shit to get to the point. We've just heard all of that. And now you reap the rewards, but you've got to go through what sort of just a tough journey to get to that point. It's not going to come just because you click your fingers and you think it's going to happen. You've right. got to put in the work. You've got to put in the work. You've got to put in your time. And as you say, focus on yourself. It doesn't matter what all of these other people are doing. Absolutely. Yes, they've got this. Yes, they've got that. But that's them. You're you. Yeah. You've got to work with what you've got. Tough. Hey, on, on my social media, that Ferrari is mine and that G-Wagon is mine. It's not a rental. <laughs> I appreciate two very good choices as well. I, I love say. cars. I actually just bought Floyd Mayweather, uh, Floyd Mayweather the boxer. Yeah. I just uh, In 2018, Mercedes made these special 4 by 4 uh, square G-Wagons, and they're like mm -hmm. seven and a half feet tall. They're a foot wider. They're beautiful. They only made 300 in 2018, and Floyd Mayweather had one of them, and I had a broker. Um, this is crazy, actually. Let me tell you, because this is about intention and visualization. I could tell you 100 stories like this. So like two years ago, I saw one of these on the internet, these G-Wagon squares in 2018, yeah. and I'm like, I got to have one of those, right? I didn't like the regular G-Wagon. This thing just was wider and taller and beefier and higher. And uh, I'm like, I want to have one of those. And then I saw uh, Floyd Mayweather, who's an extensive car collector. I saw a video of him on YouTube with one, and it was black. And it wasn't like black shiny. Like it's a black, it's a matte black, flat black. It doesn't shine. And he had that, and like a Bugatti and all these beautiful cars and everything. And I'm like, I'm going to get me one of those. So I, I, I took a picture of one, and I put it on my phone as kind of a dream board, right? I look at it, and it's like, I mean, I don't need a car. I'm driving a Range Rover at the times. But, I mean, this is a car. It's a you know, bucket list deal. Two years later, I get a guy in San Diego calls me. He's a car broker that gets, I bought a couple of cars from him. And he says, hey, man, I got a 2018 G-Wagon, black and super low mileage. You got to get this thing. 
And I'm like, he sent me some pictures of it, low mileage, perfect. It, it was the, the flat black. It was just like the one in the pictures. So I, I, we, I said, I'll be out to get it, right? He can't even ship it to me because it's so wide mm. that they have to have special trucks. So I said, you know what? I'll fly out to San Diego and get it. So I hop on a plane and I fly out to San Diego. I go over there the next morning and I walk in this beautiful G-Wagon, just like I dreamed, perfect condition. And I'm looking at it. We're signing some paperwork. He goes, by the way, he goes, uh, this, this G-Wagon belonged to a very famous athlete. And, and I said, don't instantly. tell me it was Floyd Mayweather. <laughs> Do not tell me. He goes, that's exactly whose it was. It was the exact one that I had seen on the internet, him showing with that Bugatti like two years earlier. It was crazy, dude. The exact one. All goes back to that prosperity mindset, doesn't it? It is. It's about visualization, expectation, you know, intention, all those different things. And listen, when I started reading this stuff, this was the stuff that changed my life. When I first started reading it, and I started reading all the old classics that you've probably read, most of your listeners and viewers have read. You know, and, and here's what I kept finding out. I, I started getting cool with the whole concept that, okay, my thoughts are creating my life, right? Somehow the chaos in here is getting out and showing up in my life. I remember reading Nietzsche said, we attract that which we fear. In the Bible, Job says, that which I have feared has come upon me. So it's like, okay, so all the stuff I fear, being a loser, not knowing my kid, going to prison, blah, blah, blah. I'm attracting those things in my life. I got to change what I'm thinking about. So I started reading all these books, but they all came across to me as a little bit mystical and a little bit, uh, I don't know, just, I don't know, like, like touchy-feely too much. I don't know. But I, I wanted to understand the science behind it. So I started reading some books on neuroscience and how what happens. And what happens when we have a thought, any thought, it simply sends a signal to a part of our brain called the hypothalamus that secretes a chemical. And, and the chemical triggers the emotion. So the emotion is a chemical reflection of the thought. So if I'm happy, I'm excited, my brain is producing dopamine and endorphins, and I have a happy, excited emotion. If I'm angry or mad, my brain starts producing epinephrine and adrenaline, right? And I get angry and mad emotionally. So the emotions are just a reflection of the thought chemically in our brain. Once I have that emotion, I have some reaction. I do something, right? I take some action, some behavior. And then, of course, that behavior produces the results. So the thought drives the emotions, the emotions drive the behaviors, the behaviors drive the results. Well, here's the scary part. Your emotions and behaviors are always a reflection of your thoughts. Everything you do, everything you feel is simply a reflection of your thoughts. But the scary part is your emotions and actions are a reflection of your thoughts even if the thought is wrong. You can believe something that's not true and produce very real emotions, very real behaviors, and very real results. And this is what we talk about a self-fulfilling prophecy. So it's so important that you, you think the right things. When I say you got to think about what you think about before you think about it, because mm -hmm. those habitual thoughts are going to produce the emotions and the behaviors that produce the results. If I'm thinking crazy shit, if I'm thinking about robbing a bank, if I'm thinking about kicking that dude's ass, sooner or later, I'm going to walk over there and kick his ass, right? Sooner or later, I'm going to rob that bank. It's all just a product of our expectations, our thoughts. And, and I encourage everybody to read anything you can, right? You can read some Emerson. You can read some James Allen. I've got a James Allen this thick I read all the time. That book right there, The Power of Consistency, that whole book is about that topic and how our mm. thoughts, you know, perpetuate our results. So important to think about what you think about before you think about it because everything you think is creating your life. You don't realize it, but every little decision you make is pulling out a little piece of your life every single day. And if you have to take one lesson from that, from this podcast as a whole, just rewind and listen to that because it's just, as you say, it's so important how we Absolutely. just our mindset is. And it's so powerful as well. We don't realize how powerful our mind is.
Mm. And as you say, all of these little things intertwining create the product. And I love that story about the car as well. Huge car guy. So anything about cars, not that I can afford either of those, but I like hearing about them. (laughs) (laughs) But you will. One day. Exactly. Exactly. That 488 Pista will be in the garage one day. And that reminds me of a youngster I was talking to a couple of years ago, about 26, 27 years old. And he owned a plumbing company. He was dead broke. He's like, man, I can't make any money. Our customers are cheap. Our competition's too cheap. And there ain't no money in this business and blah, blah, blah. And his dad owned the business for 20 years before him. And he's like, yeah, my dad never had, my dad was always broke. And then finally he said to me, he goes, yeah, it's like my daddy always said, plumbers don't drive Cadillacs. And I thought right there, there's, there's your sign right there. Funny thing is, two weeks later, I'm down working with one of the most successful plumbing contractors in the country uh, down in Florida. And got about 100 plumbers that work for him, huge outfit. And I'm down there doing some training. And at the end of day one, he invites me out to his house. He said, I want you to see my new boat. My wife wants to cook you dinner. I said, well, that sounds great. So I went over there that afternoon. And I'm driving in, pulling the driveway. His wife is backing out of the garage. And what do you think she's driving? She's driving a Cadillac Escalade. I'm thinking, I guess some plumbers do drive Cadillacs, <laughs> you know? And then we get in his Escalade. We drive around this marina a couple of miles away, and his boat turns out to be a 65-foot, $3.5 million yacht. And I think, dang, man, some plumbers drive Cadillacs and yachts, and some don't. But here's the question. Plumbers don't drive Cadillacs. Plumbers drive Cadillacs and yachts. Which man is right? They're both right. They're yeah. both products of their expectations. And that is just the harsh reality of life. We're better something I, yeah, exactly. There's something I do want to talk about then is, and this is a question I ask in all my episodes, it's what do you believe your two biggest failures are in your journey so far? And for you, let's not go down the aspect of the prison and that aspect. Let's go for more business focused. Yeah. So throughout your business journey, what do you think yeah. have been your two biggest failures so far? Well, how about if I give you, I'll give you one in prison and we don't count it towards the two, but it's the single biggest failure, the single biggest uh, regret of my life. And that is number one, that I wasn't there when my father died. And number two, that I left my son alone from the time he was three to the time he was 10. Cause those mm. seven years I was in prison. Uh, and, and that there's so much regret around that business failure. So the first one I can think of is, in 2008 and 2009. So I told you in 2005, I started that first heating and air conditioning company. And I grew it in our third year, 2007, we did $7 million. So I was feeling pretty confident. I was feeling pretty good. And I went out and borrowed a bunch of money. And I, uh, I bought several of my competitors. I bought four or five competitors. And throughout the process of the money I borrowed, the debts I had uh, to take over of theirs, uh, promissory notes to paying people out, different things. It all totaled up to be a couple of million dollars. It wasn't a lot of money, but it was a lot of money to me at the time. And so I'm about $2 million in debt. And then um, the economy crashed in 2008, the housing market collapsed. And all of a sudden, business came to a screeching halt. And there was one particular supplier that two of the companies I had purchased, they owed them a bunch of money and they happened to be my supplier as well. So I owed them just for like 60 days worth of whatever. But between what I owed them for 60 days and what the other companies owed them that I assumed that the liability for was a half a million dollars. And they started calling me up and they're like, hey, what are you going to do about this half a million dollars? And my strategy was really, really short-sighted. I was kind of ignoring it. Like if I ignore them long enough, then maybe, just maybe, 
the economy will get better. And, and by the time I start paying them, things will be better. I just got to keep putting them off. Well, that worked for a few months until they had enough of it. And they started filing lien intents, notice of liens against all the homes that those systems went into. Right? So mm. our phones start ringing one day and 200 customers had received this notice of intent to lien. And so they started calling us and that got my attention. So I sat down with, um, with the person we owed the money. I signed a promissory note. It was $480,000 uh, over 48 or 24 months. We pay $20,000 a month. And I signed that. I had to put my house in Maui up as collateral. I used to joke with them for those couple of years. I'd say, yeah, I'd talk to Chuck Lowmiller, who was the guy that owned the company that I owed the money. Talk to Chuck and see if I can borrow the place in Maui for a couple of weeks because he basically owned it for two years. But we got that paid off in 20 months. We actually paid it off four months ahead of time. But the real mistake that I learned from that was that you have to be so open and transparent with not just your customers, employees, but all your, all your stakeholders, right? Mm -hmm. I, I put us in a real big uh, jeopardy situation by trying to ignore it and postpone it instead of just facing it head on. And, you know, that was an, a very powerful lesson. When I work with clients now, you know, I, I think understanding the importance of everybody in the whole uh, stakeholder chain, right? Open, transparent, honest communications, no matter how bad the situation is. Because if you try to ignore things, try to postpone things, it just creates a bigger problem. So that was one big misstep. We got out of it okay that we paid it all off and I sold the company and actually made a little bit of money on it. So it, it all worked out in the end. The other, the other big mistake that I made was actually a marketing mistake. I'm always trying different marketing ideas. I will try a marketing idea. Like I'll wake up in the middle of the night with an idea. I'm like, damn it, we're, we're going to try it tomorrow. And sometimes they can be very costly mistakes. And one time, I don't know if back, back in the day when they first had the Priceline commercials and it was like, name your own price, name your price, like for a vacation or for travel. I owned a heating and air conditioning company at the time, that same one. And I'm like, how about if we just like name your own price for air conditioning systems? Like you have us put it in and you tell us what you want to pay us. <laughs> Thinking that people would be fair and people were not fair. And so we put a system in and I'd put a system in that was worth $10,000. They'd say, well, how about $2,000? Like $2,000, it doesn't even. So we only did it a couple of times because they got stung really hard. But uh, that was two of the biggest boneheaded mistakes. Not communicating with my uh, stakeholders, especially my suppliers, and maybe being a little too quick off the draw on dumb marketing ideas. Thing is, though, I'd counteract your marketing one by saying that at least you're willing to try and test because I think that's where a lot of companies go wrong is they aren't willing to throw the money in to actually test in the first place. So they'll have all these ideas and think, oh, these could work, but mm, money, I'm not going to test them. When really one of those ideas could counteract all the money that they'll lose on the rest of them. Yeah. But so at least you're willing to test because all of these ones that you have come up in the middle of the night and gone, oh, right, this is going to be amazing. Half yeah. of them obviously won't work. Well, the majority of them won't work. But that one that does makes yeah. up for the rest of them. You know, it's, it's kind of like all these private equity companies and these uh, venture capitalists. You know, they only have like I've read as low as one in 10 of their projects really making any money. But mm. the one that hits more than compensates for the nine they lost. And again, it gets back to that same thing. If you want to double your rate of success, you got to triple your rate of failure. No one is going to get it right every single time. So if you're so afraid of making a mistake that you won't do anything, you're never going to have any success. And I'll tell you something else. Just as a, just as a, a guy who's getting a little bit up there in years now, you know, it's not many things about 
uh, good that are good about getting old, right? They're not much good about it. <laughs> the, the two things I found is some wisdom and some hum humility. You learn a few things and you learn you really don't know shit. You're fortunate to have everything you have. And, you know, the, the world ain't going to miss you when you're gone, right? That humility that just be grateful. But the wisdom part. But one of the things that comes from the wisdom, I will tell you this. 99% of the shit I've learned, I've learned from the stuff where I failed. When I make money and things go right, honestly, half the time, I can't even tell you why. <laughs> that worked out. I don't know why. It just worked out. Yeah. But when shit hits the fan, I can say, oh, I did this wrong or I did that wrong. And most of my learning, I mean, I dare say all of my learning, I learn from the stupid shit I've done. That, that's, that's, that's where you learn everything. For sure. And obviously, people don't like failing because failing's failing. You'd much prefer to succeed. But at least you're not going to fail again on that same thing. At least you know right. not to go back to that thing and right. you can go forward. Failing yeah. is just progressing. I, that's what I see it as. There is, there, there's no such thing as, I know it sounds cheesy, but there's no such thing as failure because you learn from failure and surely you can see yeah. that as a success. The only failure is if you quit. That's the mm. only time you can, you can, you can fail. I, I remember thinking when I first got out of prison and started writing books and stuff and I would look at people like Tom Hopkins and Brian Tracy and Tony Robbins and all these really successful Stephen Covey, all these successful, great influential people. And I remember thinking, man, I just like, I got to hurry and catch. I got to catch up. I got to catch up. I got to catch up. And, and, and then I realized one day, you know what? I don't, I don't have to catch up at all. I'm on the exact same road those guys are on. I'm just a few exits behind, right? Mm -hmm. And it was like when I could align myself with these people that I really respect and really admire and look up to that I mean, you know, I got started late in life. I mean, I was, you know, washing dishes in the penitentiary at 39 years old, you know. So, you know, I, I got started late. But if you could just look at the people that you admire and understand that, you may not be exactly where they are, but you're on the same road at different points. But who gives a shit? If I'm driving from here to Denver an hour away, does it matter if, if I'm at mile marker 135 or 145? I mean, they're just getting there a little sooner. And where is there? Mm. Well, th there's the end of the line, right? They're just going to die sooner than I am. Or, you know, the bottom line is I'm on the same path, just at a different point of the same road. Who gives a shit if they're ahead of me? It doesn't make any sense. I don't listen. When I'm driving to Denver to the airport, and there's a guy five miles ahead of me that I can't even see. I'm not sitting there getting jealous or resentful of him. I'm just where I am. Right? Sure, what, was that, yeah. what was that poem? I think it was Shakespeare that, you know, that the, the, the rose doesn't get angry. The rose doesn't get jealous. The rose doesn't get mad. I forget the whole poem. But basically, the rose isn't jealous of that rose because it's prettier. He's just a rose. And that to me is, I guess that's about the contentment and some of the wisdom that comes with getting older. And I think that's one thing that I need to take on board. I do take it on board and it's something I've been trying to work on because I'm 21 years old. I know that I've got a, a hell of a long road ahead of me. Yeah. So I just need to be patient because yeah. it will, my time will come eventually. If I just keep working consistently Absolutely. and putting the hours in, I've got nothing yeah. to worry about. Absolutely. I've got a hell of a lot of time. So Absolutely. that rounds up the bulk of the podcast episode. And you have provided so much value that, I can't even pick out my favorite part. It was amazing, some of the stuff you've had to say. But I do have a way that I round off all my episodes, and it's a final five. Just five quick questions that I ask everyone because okay. everyone gives a different answer, and they're all interesting. So whenever you're ready, the first question is, who is the first person that comes to mind when I say the word successful? Uh, Stephen Covey. Any particular reason? 
uh, because he impacted the life of millions and millions of people with his work and was one of the most decent, kind, and generous men I've ever met in my life. Is that something you're trying to replicate as well? Uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't really like, I, I, I don't think I do it because of that. I, I'm like generous to a fault. Uh, I don't ever expect to have the kind of impact that he did, mm. but, uh, but I, I try to have an impact. I certainly try to be generous with, uh, when I was walking out of prison the last time, there was this captain that I knew <laughs> for many years. And when I was walking out, uh, he said, uh, long, and I turn around and he goes to whom much is given much is required. And I'm like, I don't have shit right now. And he's like, but you will. And so I've always taken that admonition very, very seriously. I think it's a very good point. Very good point. Um, what is the best investment you've ever made? So this can be money, time, energy, or simply an Amazon purchase. The best investment I ever made was an online training platform for the heating and air conditioning industry. Uh, I, was, I created this, this, this platform they could come to and do all, take all my sales training online. And I ended up selling, I was generating a lot of money with it, but ended up turning it for millions and millions of dollars to a bigger company who uh, just had very deep pockets and wanted it and wanted me to do some work for them. So by far, I, I would have to go back and calculate what I invested because it took us a couple of years to build it. But mm. uh, I, sold it, I, I sold it for millions and millions of dollars and royalties in the back end. It's kind of ridiculous. So, and you're still reaping those rewards from it. And will be for probably probably close to when I die. So that was quite a good point as well then. So you just had this heating and air conditioning company and then off the back of it thought, ah, yeah, let's just train other people how to do it and make more income. And now it's ended up being one of the best decisions you've ever made. And here's the crazy thing, Ethan. So I built it up and I was generating about $100,000 a month in revenue off of it. Mm. But I had so much overhead, it really wasn't that profitable. By the time I had... Uh, you know, programmers and marketing people and video people and overhead and building. I really wasn't making that much money on it. But when I sold it, I made millions. And so it wasn't even, it wasn't even the money I was making when I had it because it was a lot of work and producing content like on a daily basis and trying to sell it and market it and take care of your customers. It was a lot of, a lot of work. But when I sold it, they're like, all they wanted me to do was just be the spokesperson for it. <laughs> so yeah, now they do all the back end, all the programming, all the video. I produce video for them, but they pay for all of it. I don't have a single employee on that business. It's crazy. Living the dream, living the dream. So yeah. do you have a quote that you live by or think of often? Yes. Yes. Uh, my favorite one is Henry David Thoreau. Advance confidently in the direction of your dreams and endeavor to live the life that you have imagined and you will meet with success unexpected in common hours. And that is one that has just given me something to hang on to many, many times in my life. I love it. I haven't heard that hasn't been one on the podcast so far. So well done. What advice would you give to your 20 year old self? Uh, that's interesting. Based on what you just said, I would tell my 20 year old self, number one, you don't have shit coming. Nobody owes you anything. And just slow your roll and enjoy the journey a little bit. Mm. I mean, don't sit back and hope magically it happens. You got to continue like you were saying. Get up every day and take the next step. You have to take action. This whole book right here, I talk about the fear process. F-E-A-R, focus, emotional commitment, action, and responsibility. That action thing is purpose. But I, I would tell my 20-year-old self that nobody owes you shit. And just take consistent steps every day and slow your roll. 
it, it, it's going to happen. It may not happen today, but it's going to happen because my greed and my impatience drove me to take uh, shortcuts that only only postponed the good stuff because I had to go to prison for 13 years, you know. I love asking that question because it's a bit of a selfish question on my part because that's sort of my age bracket. I'm 21. So I asked, what do you think of your 20-year-old self? I just try and take on board as much as I possibly can for that question hey, because – Let me tell you something. You're doing fine. You're doing fine. you got to be proud of what you're doing, man. I'm telling you. You have, you have the skills to pay the bills, man. I'm telling you. I don't know you. Uh, you're across a gigantic ocean from here. But I'm telling you, man, I know a winner when I see it and when I hear it. And you're a winner, dude. I, I just just know that you got your shit in the right in the right direction. I really appreciate that. That's honestly so motivating. So thank you. Yeah, I do have one final question for you. And it's a bit of a morbid way to end the episode. So I do apologize, but it's a I find it a seriously interesting question because I get some extremely interesting answers. And it's are you afraid of dying? Um I will be a hundred percent honest with you. The answer to that is yes. And it's really weird. And I know probably at some point in life, this will change because I think that if you don't change as you get near that, now I could die unexpectedly. And of course it wouldn't matter. But if I go through the natural process of another 20 or 25 or 30 years on this planet, um, I think at some point we must have to shift. Otherwise it would be too horrible of an experience when you know you're Mm. getting close. But right now I'm 56 years old. And I got a great fucking life. I got all the toys. I got a beautiful wife. My kids are great. My son, that little three-year-old boy, is now 27. He just graduated from the University of Colorado last year. I've got a 16-year-old stepdaughter who is just a genius, beautiful young lady. And, like, everything is so good. When I start thinking about, like, saying goodbye to all that, it's like I get sad. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to ever not be with these folks. And so – I've had this conversation. I never conversation. I can't believe you asked the question. I've had the conversation with myself, never with another person that I really hope that I get comfortable and less anxious about dying. Because if I don't, then when I'm 80 or 78, I know I'm getting close. I'm going to be scared shitless. I'm going to be really not enjoying my life, Yeah. but I don't want to, man. Uh, I, I, I gotta be honest. I know a lot of people are brave about those things. I lost my sister-in-law, uh, three years ago to cancer. And I had known her since I was a teenager. It was my brother's wife. And she died on a Monday. Friday night I was with her. And I, I couldn't, couldn't believe she was dead three days later because Friday she was talking and she completely lucid. And she told me we were talking and she said, I'm not ready to go. And I hear all these stories about people, how brave they face cancer and like they just embrace it. And, 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 and I, I mean, I really admire that stuff. But like, I feel like I'm more like her. Like, she wasn't ready to go and she didn't make it. I mean, she faced it bravely. She didn't whine and complain ever. She never mm-hmm. whined. She never complained, but she wasn't ready to go. And so I don't know that I'm afraid of dying. I'm sad about dying. I'm sad about waking up or not waking up and seeing my wife and my kids. I'm, I don't like that. And I think it's almost like it's one of the cruel hoaxes of life. And I don't know why we were created that way to make it 80 or 85 years, it takes you 40 years to figure out what the hell's going on most of the time, you know, and then you're halfway through. So I'm just being transparent, man. I'm not some super brave. I got it all figured out kind of guy. I'm a guy's like, man, I don't ever want to not see my wife again. I don't ever want Mm. that day to come. I know it's going to happen, but I don't ever want it. 
I really appreciate you sharing that because not many people say yes. And you went down an extremely personal avenue there. So thank you for sharing that. And it's, I guarantee most people will think the same yet. They just don't want to say it. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It's a, it's a good question. You're, you're, you got a very insightful young brain there, man. You've asked me some, I've been interviewed. I don't know how many hundreds of times on radio, television, digital stuff like this. And dude, you asked some really poignant questions, the biggest failures, uh, the death thing, the quote thing. No one's ever asked me that question that you got, you got four or five zingers in there, man. You just keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. I will. Don't worry. Yeah. These podcast episodes will keep coming, but that is all I have for you today. And honestly, thank you so much for your time. I'm sure the, sure all the listeners thank you for your time as well. So I'd love to give you the chance. Where can my listeners follow up with you? What do you have going on at the moment? Your book, for example, yeah, I've got a, yeah, we've got a new online training platform for mindset and sales. Uh, you go to weldonlong.com. It's W-E-L-D-O-N-L-O-N-G, weldonlong.com. Uh, or you can just jump over to uh, Amazon and see my books and all that stuff there. It's pretty easy to find. Awesome. And they will all be in the show notes below. So don't worry about remembering those. Simply scroll down and they'll be there. But Weldon, once again, thank you for joining me on this episode of CEO Journals. So that's going to wrap up today's episode of the podcast and I can't thank you all enough for listening. I aim to interview some of the most incredible entrepreneurs every single week. So if you found any value in listening to today's episode, I'd seriously appreciate if you could smash that subscribe button and leave a five star rating and review. It only takes a couple of seconds and will help me secure some of the greatest names in business as guests on the show. If you want to reach out to me, head over to my Instagram at CEO Journals or send me a connection request on LinkedIn. I'd love to speak to as many of you as possible. Be sure to tune in next week where I'll be talking to another incredible guest where we will be discussing their journey and providing some great tips for all you listeners. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day and once again, thank you for tuning in to today's episode of CEO Journals.